Hello, and welcome to the Her and Him podcast. I'm Dale. And I'm Tamara. And when two theologians get married, what you get is the podcast. Well, this is our 50th, 5-0, 50th episode. 5-0. Wow. That feels we like made some it. Kind of milestone, yeah. I mean, maybe two of our listeners made it with us. Do you want to make a speech? I would like our... to thank myself. I would like to thank you being the him to my her. Had to think about that. Make sure I said it the correct way. I'd like to thank my children for being asleep so we could record this 50th episode. It wouldn't be a celebration if they were awake. Right. It would exactly. be chaos. <laughs> so we're celebrating with some energy drinks. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> well, we'd like to thank all of you who have been listening with us and who have been on this journey with us. Right. Our two listeners. I thank them already. Yes. And if this podcast has been helpful to you in some way over the past 49 episodes, we would love it if you give it a rating and review on iTunes. That'll help other people find it. And if you really love it, then you know, just copy that link and share it with somebody who you think will also enjoy all of our shenanigans. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> so far after a good start on this 50th episode of the podcast. Yeah, we're not awkward in any way, shape, or form. Exactly. We do this every day. <laughs> this is our day job. Well, as you know, I frequent this little website called Instagram.com. Is that a website? I think it's an app. It's a it's a it's a website and an app. Okay. You can view it on your desktop, you know that? Really? Yeah. Who does that? I think old people do it. Oh. I didn't even know that you could view it on desktop. Maybe, I thought it was only an app. Maybe you're the old one. You don't even know how Instagram works. There's probably very limited functions on your desktop. Uh it is. You can limited, only view, yeah. you can't post. Right. So all of the creepy stalkers on Instagram who only view stuff can be sitting there on their desktop like scrolling through while they're supposed to be working. Yeah, I have a friend who's a little bit older who took a picture of an Instagram post that he was viewing on his laptop and texted it to me. All and right. I was like, Dude, how old are you? That's <laughs> Yep. We all know that person or many of them. Right. But one of my favorite uh Instagram accounts right now is this account called Be a Man. Oh, yes. It's super funny. It's this it's dude. It's not super funny. Who I think he was originally on TikTok, but then now he reposts everything to Instagram. And it's just this middle-aged dude from Boston who posts tips on how to be a man in a thick Boston accent. And they're all jokes, obviously, because this advice is terrible. So <laughs> he'll say things like, spend $50,000 on a truck, but don't use it to do any truck stuff. Be a man. Or if you drop an ice cube... Don't pick it up. Just kick it under the fridge. <laughs> Be a man. That one feels very real. Yeah. <laughs> or this one. If your girl tells you to get in touch with your emotions, punch a hole in the wall. Be a man. Hmm. Perfect advice. Exactly. And Be so obviously man. he's poking fun at some of the silly things that men do, particularly a certain kind of man in uh, this kind of old school tough guy, toxic masculinity kind of way. And for many of us, it's kind of like the masculinity of our fathers. Hmm. And so that's kind of why it's funny because it's like kind of laughing at your own trauma because <laughs> this is the kind of manhood that we grew up with. And it's this particular kind of masculinity that, you know, we can joke about, but really 
as we look at that kind of brand of what it means to be a man and someone telling us, be a man, uh, there's actually a lot of danger in that and mm. there's a lot of toxicness that comes out of that, particularly when that kind of masculinity is in a place of power. Right, which we've been seeing a lot about that in one particular Christian leader these days. I mean, You said one particular Christian I leader? I mean... Many particular many, Christian leaders. But there's one who... It just kind of keeps resurfacing for him. He keeps making the same errors, and they seem to be growing. So maybe he's not learning from his past mistakes. He's repeating them and making sure they're larger than the previous one. Yeah, and so who are you talking about when you're making reference to one particular leader? I'm talking about Mark Driscoll. Mark Driscoll is kind of like your prototypical be a man kind of masculine leader. And he used to be the pastor of a church in Seattle, a large church called Mars Hill. And when I was really young, I actually listened to a lot of Mark Driscoll. Did you listen to Mark Driscoll I didn't. in your younger no. days? Yeah, it was more kind of like that young, restless, reformed kind mm. of brand of evangelicalism. And he was kind of like the poster boy for that and kind of like the spokesperson for that contingency of people. And he's always been like kind of brash and sometimes foul-mouthed and uh, always telling people to be a man, you know, yelling at people, who do you think you are? Like from the pulpit. Goodness. And that kind of stuff. And really, that style of leadership cost him his church in Seattle a number of years back. Um, and the church actually ended up dissolving and no longer exists as a result of that. And um, there was kind of this moment where he had a hiatus. He had this, I don't know if you remember, like the interview he had with Brian Houston, where he was very apologetic. Hmm. And, um, you know, basically his elder board um, kind of pushed him to resign basically because of you know, toxic leadership and kind of verbal abuse and intimidation and all these kinds of things. Uh, and it seemed like, you know, maybe he had learned some lessons, but um, after a short hiatus, he planted a new church in Arizona. And, you know, I feel like a lot of people were rooting for him and saying like, hey, like this is a fresh start or, you know, maybe those apologies were sincere. Maybe things will be different this time. Uh, but that appears not to have been the case. Yeah, there's been a lot of reports that have come out in the last couple months. I think it's been a couple months now since the first one made its way into the public eye. And really what people are accusing him is the same thing that happened at Mars Hill, which is this toxic leadership, abuse, verbal abuse, and complete mistreatment of people on staff and people within the congregation itself. And so we've seen two really lengthy reports that have come out. I didn't read every word on them. They were pretty full. But one of the reports was written by Julie Royce, um, and this one was a really extensive report about some specific abuses, which had included Mark Driscoll basically excommunicating anyone who disagrees with him, along with their entire family. So if you were associated with that person in any way, you were either excommunicated or kicked off a of staff, or you were no longer liked or an in-crowd of relation to Mark Driscoll. Yeah, and he'd even put you on what they call a bolo list with their security team, a be on the lookout for, so that they could uh, grab you and eject you from the campus sight on scene, uh, because basically you're on the outside. The what youth. a hostile environment. It's pretty, pretty sketchy. Yeah, it's like, it's a, like to show up to church and It's like a police state inside right. the, the walls of his church. Imagine being a member and you just see a family being escorted out. 
Yeah. Like a whole family who just showed up on a Sunday morning. And Mark Driscoll just tailing behind saying, who do you think you are? Yeah. Beer man. Uh, But this report uh, by Julie Royce, uh, it really centered on one instance in particular. And this one hit, I guess, pretty close to home for Mark Driscoll, literally. And that involved his teenage daughter and a teenage boy that was in the youth group. And they had started dating. And I guess uh, this young man kissed his daughter. Oh, and no. that basically brought down hellfire from Mark Driscoll. And now that boy, along with his entire family, has been excommunicated from the church. They've been kicked out. They're on a bolo list. And it's actually pretty crazy, like, the way it went down in that once Driscoll found out about this, he sent one of his other pastors to... Uh, pull the kid out from it was like a midweek event i can't quite remember if it was like a band practice or it was a youth group or a men's event or whatever it was and he pulled him into his office and locked him in the office and basically started interrogating him and then belligerently uh, berating him and profanity laced threats and all kinds of things and then basically kicked him out and um it was shortly thereafter that the entire family was basically told like hey you can't come back here ever again and now that family is suing Driscoll's church for wrongful, for imprisonment, wrongful yeah. imprisonment of their son, which that's pretty traumatic for that young boy. I mean, for anyone to be locked into an office and feel like you have no escape and someone's just sitting there yelling at you all day, uh, that's pretty traumatizing. But I think even more so for someone who's younger, like a young teenage boy that has to be a really traumatic event for him. Yeah, so that's pretty toxic. But then it gets worse from there. Because then after that, what Driscoll did is he had a private investigator hired to follow this family around to see about their comings and goings, I guess maybe to see if he could find anything incriminating so that he could discredit them or something. Yeah, it probably had to do with them suing him. Yeah, literally the private investigator and the whole security team Uh, knew exactly where the members of this family were at any given moment. And they had like an open text thread basically uh, chronicling the movements of this. They had their house staked out. They would follow them in cars. And so it's just like this crazy like hyper paranoia that is around this kind of need for control. And what's crazier than that is that even if you – Uh, associate with someone who has been excommunicated in such a way that puts you at risk. And there's like a couple of instances where um, I guess a a picture came up on social media with someone who is in leadership at the church with someone who used to be in leadership at the church, but who's been excommunicated. I think it was actually the the wives of those two families. Yeah. Basically the husband got called into the office and said, Hey, I think the exact words are you need to get control of your wife yikes, and to, to tell her to disassociate with this riffraff. And they're like, we can't tell you what to do, but we do control whether you're in leadership at this church or not. And so really, if you want to continue to be here and not be on the outs yourself, uh, then you need to disassociate from these people and they need to be dead to you. Yeah. So it's a major abuse of power, not only from Mark Driscoll, but then him empowering those beneath him to abuse their powers as well. And so you really see this domino effect starting with Mark Driscoll and his toxic leadership style moving down to those who serve beneath him. 
Yeah, and there's even like a rating system that you are assigned like the the level of trust between one and ten. And like ten is like Mark Driscoll's wife and his family. And like one is like you're you're basically out of there. And so everybody on the staff and everybody on the security team is ranked in terms of their number one to ten. And the higher you are in that ranking, the more access you have to Mark Driscoll and his family. And the lower you are, the less access you have to their family. And basically, if you associate with someone who's on a bolo list, then you immediately get downgraded and you might even get fired or kicked out of of the church at that point. And so it it's like this crazy like hierarchy of loyalty above everything, uh, unquestioning loyalty. And re- it's almost like the mafia mm-hmm. <laughs> at a certain point where there's like threats of violence and, and, uh, and maybe dismemberment basically, if you uh, don't fall in line, like absolutely to the T. Yeah. And we even end up seeing a, another report that was published by the former director of security. And he had published a really long open letter um, outlining some of the details from his own perspective. And I, I remember reading the beginning of it and a lot of the reason why he said he wanted to write this and to be as detailed as possible is because so many people were writing off the stories that had come out before he decided to write this. And he really wanted to give these victims some backing in regards to what he had personally seen being the director of security. And it it gets really nasty. It's a really long open letter. <laughs> like yeah, it's, the Royce report yeah. and the open letter from the former director of security are both like at least a few thousand words long. We'll link to both of those in the show notes if you want to go over all of the grisly details of that. I mean, we covered a lot of it here, but there's actually even more within that to kind of reveal what we're talking about here. And really, we wanted to talk about this not just for the sake of the hot goss and to get into those details, but really to illustrate exactly what we mean when we talk about kind of this toxic uh, leadership that is oftentimes a part of evangelical culture, this toxic masculinity that's a part of evangelical culture. It's a real case study in exactly what we're talking about. And as you read the reports and the open letter and you see all of those grisly details and it makes your blood run cold or it makes your blood boil in other places, you can actually begin to see it like that's what we're talking mm-hmm. about. And um, really like Driscoll is like a real bad case, but he he's not unique and i mean he's become a caricature of himself it seems like over the years and he's become a caricature of what it means to be a toxic uh, leader uh, in a lot of ways but he's not unique to the experience of evangelical culture in any way yeah and revealing the details actually just puts flesh on this topic because we can just use this word toxic leadership and we all have some sort of an idea what we're talking about but when you share some of the details it helps us understand how bad this problem has become and how toxic it is in the lives of those who are being abused and in the lives of those who are falling underneath these types of leaders in our evangelical Christian realms. Yeah, and even I would say I I haven't experienced things quite as bad as are taking place at Driscoll's church right now. Um, 
but I mean, but I have experienced some things that are that are pretty bad. Like I've seen power struggles on elder boards that really resemble corporate takeovers more than they do church leadership. I've seen uh, arguments erupt into physical altercations on the church patio uh, between one church leader or another, and I've seen you know just some really underhanded things take place with certain church leaders who are trying to control the narrative. And so these things aren't unique, and I'm sure that Driscoll's church isn't the only one experiencing them. I'm sure I'm not the only one who's who has experienced them. And so uh, we think it's important to bring these things to bear, not just to talk about the hot goss, but to really um, pick apart, like, what is going on with this? Why is this something that continues to occur? And instead of just continuing to pick apart these stories, um, the stories that have come to light from Mark Driscoll and even some of your own personal stories, um, we thought that it it might actually be helpful to explore some of the toxic leadership moves that we find in the Bible and the types of damaging situations that they caused because they're not only affecting the leadership and the team that's surrounding that person, but they have these long-lasting rippling effects far and wide into people that fall underneath the leadership. Yeah, so everything that's old becomes new again, right? That's a good way to put it. So we want to look at some real old leaders that are very similar to new leaders in today's day and age. And really when I think about toxic leadership in the Bible, probably the first name that comes to mind is that of King Saul. Yeah, King Saul was the first king of Israel in the Old Testament. And what's interesting is that when we first meet him in 1 Samuel chapter 9, is he's actually pretty reluctant about becoming king. He is, but he looked like a king. I mean, the Bible describes him like he's tall, he's broad-shouldered, he has a strong jaw. He's, he <laughs> he's good-looking. Yeah. I think it says he's yeah. good-looking. He looks like a warrior. He looks like a king. He looks like the kind of guy that would fit the bill. Yeah, but when Samuel comes to him, and Samuel was the person who God had called to appoint Saul as king, when Samuel comes to him, uh, Saul is actually hiding behind storage containers, and Samuel has to coax him out so that he can become king, so that Samuel can tell him, hey, Saul, you are going to be king of Israel. Yeah, it's so interesting. Like, So Samuel was the prophet at the time, and Samuel's really kind of this bridge character between the age of the judges and the age of the kings in Israel. And he was appointed by God to anoint King Saul, or Saul to be the king. And he, he goes looking for Saul. He's like, where's Saul? You seen Saul around here? He's like, I think he's hiding over there behind the, the storage bins, and he has to coax him out so that he can anoint him king. And that's an interesting introduction into the hmm. character of Saul. And his leadership. And his leadership. Yeah. And it really serves to give us insight into the kind of leader he ended up becoming, which was a really insecure leader, a leader who really needed to control the situation because he had some deep you know, insecurity about his ability to uh, manage the uncertainty that comes along with being the king. And that seems to be the way it goes. When you have an insecure leader, it's dangerous for the people that are underneath him. Right. Like maybe the dude that's shouting at you to be a man is worried that he's not man enough. Mm. It's pretty telling. Yeah, and I think that actually gives us insight into the way that a 
toxic leader is usually a domineering leader as well. And that gives us um, just kind of insight into the internal struggles that these types of leaders have. Like those two traits usually go hand in hand. If they're insecure, they're most likely domineering as well. And that's a way of them trying to cover up those insecurities and trying to maybe even prove to themselves that those flaws that exist within them aren't really there, that they can overcome them somehow. And they overcome them through this really negative aspect of domineering and controlling those that are underneath them. Yeah. And really like leadership is a tough thing. Uh, it's Certainly. A, it's a thing. It's an uncertain thing. Uh, there's a phrase, heavy is the head that wears the crown. Mm. And so there's a lot of uncertainty involved. There's a lot of trust that you need to have in God leading you. And so if you're coming from a real place of a, of a deep character flaw or a place of real insecurity, it can really lead you down a bad path. And we see that bear itself out in the life of Saul, particularly when he really refused to do what God had commanded him. And that really sprang from a place of insecurity of him wanting to aggrandize himself or to prove himself Mm. or to show himself uh, to the people that he really could be the king because he didn't actually uh, believe it himself that, and he didn't necessarily have the faith that God was going to, to do that for him. And that really came in one particular instance that ended up being a, a breaking point uh, in his his kingship. And it, it, it ended up being the event that led God to reject him as king. And that's when God uh, basically led Saul into battle against the Amalekites to drive them out of the land. And when God had Israel drive certain peoples out of the land. The purpose was to clear the land that God had promised to Abraham so that the nation of Israel could be this unique nation uh, that was untainted by the the paganism of the nations around them. And so because of that, uh, they weren't supposed to take any of the spoils of war, I guess you could say, where it was typically customary in ancient times that if Mm -hmm. you, your army beat somebody else's army, you took all their stuff. And God basically said, like, you're not going to do that. The the purpose of this isn't so that you, Saul, uh, or you, Israel, can get wealthy off of, you know, defeating people in battle. And so he says, you're not going to take any of that. But when Saul went into battle against the Amalekites, he actually did do all of that. And he took all the best cattle and he took all of the best stuff. And he basically had this booty from <laughs> from the battle. Yeah. And then Samuel came to him. And actually confronted him on this because Samuel was a prophet of the time and obviously he was made aware of the fact that Saul had disobeyed God. And so when Samuel went to confront him and basically asked him like, hey, why did you disobey God? Why did you keep the things that you were specifically told not to keep? Right. He was in a conversation. He's like, was that sheep I hear? (laughs) Right. (laughs) And Saul's response which there's debate over the truth behind what Saul tells Samuel. And Saul had said, oh, yeah, I was just keeping the best of the livestock and the best of the sheep so that I could offer them up as a sacrifice to God. And so some theologians believe that Saul was just lying and he was trying to cover himself in front of Samuel. And others think that maybe he truly had intention to sacrifice those things. But if we understand 
uh, Saul and his leadership, it's likely that he was trying to make a big show out of this opportunity to sacrifice before God. And that likely came out of a place of insecurity in his own leadership that he needed to put on this big show in front of the people and in some respects in front of God too, to show how great of a leader he really is. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I, I as I was reading that, I'm like, ah, did, did he just get caught with his hand in the cookie jar? And now he's saying like, oh, but I was getting it for you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it's possible that Saul was really just trying to increase his own wealth so that he could look like this wealthy, successful king. Uh, or it could be that he really was going to uh, make this giant sacrifice to God, but really in that he was going to really make a show of it so that all the people of Israel would think like, wow, look at this successful, generous king. In either respect, it was really just to aggrandize himself and make himself look powerful, look successful, look like he was like, this is really some kind of king. But in that, it was that moment where where God ended up rejecting Saul as king because the the kind of leader who's going to try to really control the situation in such a way and aggrandize themselves is not someone who is fit for leadership. And so it's, it's at that moment that, that God rejects Saul as the king. And this really became the trajectory of his own leadership moving forward. We see him do a lot of these kind of power moves throughout his kingship. And especially once David is introduced to the scene, we see a whole lot of fear-based leadership out of Saul and even to the point of trying to kill David. Um, but we'll get to that in, in just a moment here. Yeah, and it's interesting how David is presented as this really opposite of... Saul, where Saul is tall and broad-shouldered, and he he looks like a king, whereas David was the youngest of his brothers. He wasn't like the biggest dude. He was a lot you know smaller in stature than Saul was, uh, but he's shown to be really just this honorable character, this char- this this guy who's after God's own heart. And you see that really in contrast to Saul. And from a young age, David had served King Saul, even though Samuel had appointed, like, you're going to be the next king. He was very loyal to King Saul. Mm -hmm. Right. He was far more loyal to Saul than Saul was to him. Oh, absolutely. uh, Because uh, Saul, you know, ended up trying to kill him. And that was because Saul had really... Uh, a growing sense of jealousy against David because as David was loyal, as David was honorable, God continued to give him success and he continued to make him popular among the people. Like the people loved David. They they really gave him so much admiration. And that's the admiration that Saul had wanted and he never got it. And so he really grew to hate David. And on a number of occasions, he tried to kill him. Uh, one time he, he just straight up threw a spear at him. He Wasn't like, that when he asked David to come and like play music for him and soothe him because he was so stressed? And then before you know it, he's trying to throw spears at him. Right, yeah. Like, he, it's a very dysfunctional relationship he had with David. And it became dysfunctional once Saul was made aware that David was next in line for the king. Yeah. For the throne. And after that, David ended up going on the run and Saul is basically hunting him down to try and kill him. He's trying to smear his name. He's trying to do everything that he can. And even in the midst of that, you see this contrast again, where David actually had an opportunity, not once, but twice. 
Yeah. Where he could have solved his own problem when he uh, could have snuck up on Saul and kill him. He, he had the upper hand in, in two different occasions where he could have ended this and ended Saul's life and basically become king right there. But he didn't want to be the one who was going to raise a sword against someone that God had anointed to be mm-hmm. the king of Israel. And so you see really just this honorableness. You see the service of David in contrast to the descending mayhem and madness and uh, toxicness of Saul's leadership. Yeah. And so you constantly see this contrast between them. And even though David's not actually in leadership yet, you already get this glimpse that he's going to be a better leader than Saul was. Like he's not going to struggle with the same types of dysfunction that Saul had struggled with. And a lot of times we look at Saul and we're like, yeah, he was awful. He was not mentally stable. He was really off the charts. And it was all driven out of his insecurity and his jealousy is why he ended up making these terrible decisions just one after another because he was so afraid of the things that he couldn't control. And so we begin to see David painted in this really great light, which isn't a bad thing, but things actually end up taking a bit of a turn for David once he enters into power Things start really well until he makes really a fatal decision in terms of his leadership. Yeah, really. David is presented as this honorable opposite to Saul. And the covenant with David endures through Jesus. And so there's there's a distinction there. But as David comes to power and he gets a taste of that, he ends up getting too big for his britches and ends up behaving as a toxic leader himself and doing some pretty egregious things. And I think most of us have heard about the story between David and Bathsheba. It's a pretty well-known story. Uh, And it came really at the height of David's success. Uh, And to this point, David had really done everything right. Uh, He'd been honorable and obedient to God. And he was at the height of his, his wealth and his power and success. But then one day he's standing on the roof of his palace and he sees this beautiful woman named Bathsheba uh, bathing on the roof of her home. And things take a downhill turn from there. Yeah, when David sees her, he is obviously very curious and interested. (laughs) (laughs) You have piqued my curiosity. Yes, a naked woman bathing. How delightful. So he asks his servants or soldiers or his people. He's like, hey, who's who's that lady over there? And he he, said, hey, Jeeves, who's that lady? (laughs) And it turns out that they let him know she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who was actually part of David's army. And in this particular moment, he was out at war. So Bathsheba was home alone. And instead of just leaving it at that, saying, oh, no, that's a married woman and her husband is actually in my army. Like I shouldn't, that's not a decision I should make. Instead, and let alone David was already married as well. That's true. Yes. They were both married. So instead he tells his people to go fetch her. And that's all, that's kind of a weird thing. Like, did she have a choice in that? Did they just show up at her door and say, Hey, you're coming with us. The King wants you. And he, David ends up sleeping with her again. Was that a choice she had or is it the king calls you and you just say yes? I mean, really, in the culture of the time, you don't say no to the king lest you die, right? Right. And so after that, um, 
King David had found out that Bathsheba was pregnant. And in order to solve this dilemma he was in, he ended up killing Uriah, her husband. Yeah. I mean, at first he tried to have Uriah come back and go home to see his wife. And you're like, well, maybe he'll think the baby is his. That doesn't work out because Uriah's like, hey, I'm here. Uh, you, you wanted me to come to the palace to you know have a meeting with you, but I'm not going to go home because you know all of my fellow soldiers, they don't get to go home. Right. And so he was like way more honorable than David in that uh, situation. And so because David can't cover his tracks, he ends up uh, just having Uriah murdered. Yeah. And it's at this point in the story of David's life that really things begin to go off the rails. And we see this in uh, the narrative of Samuel. But after this, David's leadership never truly recovers. And he begins down this path really until the end of his life. And we see a number of events that take place after this big fall that just begin to unravel his leadership and the way that he was this honorable king, it now seems to take a a drastic turn. Yeah, like once he stepped into this place where he was going to abuse his power and no longer be honorable and no longer be obedient or or a servant to to those who he was leading everything really turns toxic in in the same way that you see you know kind of power hungry controlling leaders mm. there's there's always a toxic environment that results from that and there were a number of just really awful things that happened in David's life that as it was kind of like a downhill slide from there and the first one is that the baby that Bathsheba was pregnant with ends up dying. And um, the Bible doesn't really say this, but I can only imagine that the sheer stress and terror Mm. of the events taking place during that pregnancy uh, may have contributed to some issues in that pregnancy. Um, I mean, when you're basically coerced, perhaps raped, uh, your husband is murdered, you are brought in to be this new wife of the person who raped you and murdered your husband. There's a, there's trauma there, obviously, and right. um, that's not good for a pregnancy. And so maybe maybe it was a result of that, or maybe it, it was unrelated. But um, that was kind of the first you know major consequence of mm, his decision of what yeah. had happened. Uh, and then David ended up having to deal with an insurrection attempt by his own son, who wanted to, to take the throne. And part of the reason why that issue gained so much steam was probably due in part to the fact that David had such damaged credibility from this whole fiasco that when one of his sons was trying to take over, uh, he was able to gain a lot more sympathy with a lot more people because of the damaged credibility of his father. Right. And even that insurrection was part of a larger implosion of David's household that had really taken place among David's children, where one of his sons had raped one of his daughters. And so we begin to see this culture of sexual coercion that seemed to perpetuate in David's household. And that's where we hear this phrase and this term that's used a lot in the Old Testament is the sins of the father are visited on to the sons. And we see that actually take place in David's life. And all of these things really left the kingdom in a weaker state and it caused the people to suffer under threat of instability and war. So the actions of David didn't only affect him and his immediate family, but they affected the entire kingdom. 
Yeah, and you even think about like the peaceful transfer of power brings stability to a kingdom. Mm. But when you have the, I mean, and we've seen this in our own time in this last year or two where there was not a, a, a really peaceful transfer of power. Hmm. We had an insurrection on the Capitol. And so all of this drama that is originating in David's family because of things that David has done to create a toxic leadership environment, all of those things trickle down to the, the rest of the nation where they are now being held captive by the Kardashian level drama that is happening <laughs> inside of David's family. And really, you know, that's joking about the Kardashians is far worse than that when you have rape and murder and betrayal and these, you know, the threat of civil war and all of these things happening all as a result of David abusing his power hmm. and creating a toxic leadership environment where he was motivated by his ability to wield his power more than his, uh, willingness to lead, uh, as a service to the people that he was leading. And as we look back on the leadership of David, I think we can do ourselves some real harm in today's time as we look at our leaders and try and compare them to David's leadership because we oftentimes remember David as this man after God's own heart and he is really the standard of how to lead well and how to serve God and how to serve people. And we forget how toxic he became. And we forget the dysfunctional turn that his leadership had taken. And so sometimes we like to look at our leaders today and say, oh, well, hey, Davidson too. I mean, he did the whole Bathsheba thing. And we justify that in our own leaders and the flaws in our own leaders because we're we're trying to compare the sin of David to the sin of our leaders. But we have to remember that when David was called to be king, and when David was called a man after God's own heart, that was all before the sin that had taken place. That was before this major life pivot in his leadership. Yeah, because you hear this a lot like when we're trying to... Uh, plug our nose and vote for you know, a political candidate that is not a moral person. And we say, well, David had sinned. David, he slept with Bathsheba and he is still a man after God's own heart. And he was this great leader. It's a, that's a real weird application of that text. Right. Because the, the, the story of David at the end of his life in Bathsheba, that's a cautionary tale. Hmm of what it looks like to not be fit for leadership anymore. And the the way that we know that that's the moral of the story is, is because once David took that turn and that was the, the direction his life was headed, everything imploded. And so if that was at the beginning of his story, then he, ne he never would have been king, you know, right? And right. so the fact that he continued to be king and the, the, the covenant that God made with him endured and was fulfilled in Jesus really says nothing about who David is. Hmm. It says everything about the, the God who is faithful to his promises, regardless of how much of a jack wagon you end up being. <laughs> Jackwagon. Uh, I've never heard of that phrase Yeah, before. and so we can't use that as a justification for... Hmm enabling toxic leaders, whether that's toxic leaders in our local government, our national government, or toxic leaders in our churches. They say, well, everybody's flawed. 
Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody does things that they, they wish they shouldn't have. And that's true to a certain extent. Certainly. But you get to a certain threshold of toxicness and damage and rippling effects of, you know, awful things that you do as a leader that really go to show you that you are not in a place where you should be in leadership and we should not be endorsing your leadership because it is the kind of leadership that is, is leading to implosions. Right. And certainly we all sin. We all have flaws. But when you're in a place of leadership and those sins and flaws are heightened because you have power and authority, you shouldn't have power and authority. Like that becomes the problem. The problem is the power that grows these sins and flaws within your life. And so in order to really get that handled, you probably need to step down from leadership so the Lord can begin to work on you in those areas. Because if it, the issue is leadership is bringing forth these sins, then let's do away with the leadership piece of it to help bring you down a road of redemption and recovery. Yeah, and it's always bizarre to me when people reference the story of David and make the exact opposite application of what that story was trying to convey. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, because David's story really ends rather sadly. Very sadly. You're very excited for him and you're rooting for him because of everything he endured through the kingship of Saul and you're you're wanting him to be so much better and he starts that way and then it just kind of spirals and you're just left feeling very discouraged, I think, with the life that he ended up living. And so in many aspects, we certainly can look to him for good leadership, but we can also look to him for toxic leadership and ways to be cautious and ways to be mindful of those who are in power. Yeah, and I think power is not something that we should really want. Because hmm. I think every time you see someone in the Bible who has power and the more absolute that power is, the more problems tend to arise, even from the best of us, which you would think like David from the earlier parts of his life, like he was the best of us. But then once he got the keys to the kingdom, uh, that's when things you know started to go south. And I think this is why uh, in the New Testament, whenever we see church leadership established, it's always a plurality of leadership where that, that power mm -hmm. is distributed among you know, a number of people. And really in the Old Testament, God's like, you don't want a king. And they're like, we want a king. He's like, you don't want a king. The king's going <laughs> to... It's true. The king is going to have a lot of power and the king's going to have a lot of power over you. Are you sure that you want a flawed human being to have a lot of power over you? And they're like, yes. And so that's why they ended up getting the king. Um, and so we see that re kind of model reversed in the New Testament where we see a plurality of leadership always leading over uh, the church and even in local expressions. Mm -hmm. And even going back to the Driscoll situation where the reason why he was pulled from power in his church in Seattle on Mars Hill was because there was a plurality of leadership. And that plurality of leadership was able to keep him accountable and call him to account for the things that he was doing, whether it was surveilling people, whether it was berating people, abusing people. Uh, and that's eventually what ended up leading to him being removed from that leadership 
uh, situation, and unfortunately, that ended up resulting in the dissolution of that that church, which you know we obviously don't want to see that happen to any church. Um, but in many ways, that's better than them continuing to suffer under a toxic leader. You look in the church that he is, he's in now, he structured the church differently so that that wouldn't happen to him again. He beat the system. He basically is judge, he is jury, and, and executioner. Yeah. And he has a board of overseers, but that board of overseers is basically his friends from different parts of the country who can advise him. They're not members within his church. Right. And so they don't see him in day to day. They only know what he tells them. And so really they don't serve the function of keeping him accountable. And so now there is no one to keep him accountable. And so unfortunately we can expect to see abuses continue and abuses continue to get worse and for him to become more of a caricature of himself. Mm. um, It's unfortunate. I would have hoped that the situation in Seattle would have resulted in a, a different brand of leadership. Hmm. Um, but that unfortunately is not the case. And that's not the case in a lot of churches. Uh, and so we just, we need to be aware of that. I think a lot of times we get really spiritually browbeaten of like, you need to listen to your pastor. You need to listen to your leaders. You need to submit to their authority. Yes, you do, but I think there comes a point when you can begin to question whether or not you are under a toxic form of leadership, particularly when um, just the, you get into these real weird situations where you're being asked to surveil people or and I think we all know that feeling like you know that you know that feeling when you're in an abusive situation mm-hmm. there's a certain knot you get in your stomach yes there's a certain discomfort there's a certain sickness you feel come over you when you're when you're in a, a weird situation where someone's wielding authority in a toxic and abusive way um, I would say listen to that instinct mm. I wish I would have listened to that instinct earlier in in my life yeah. Uh, when I was in situations where uh, I just, there was something just wasn't right. Yeah. And the Bible has never called anyone into leadership and to say they are without accountability. Like no one is above accountability and no one is above being held accountable for the actions that they've done. And even as Christians, we can't just say, well, that's between them and God. Like we don't even see that in scripture either within the church, within the body of Christ, we are held accountable to one another and we are actually given the call to call people out and not because we want to be malicious and we want to destroy them and we want to be evil, but because sin cannot continue to grow within the church, especially from our leaders. We have to be able to remove ourselves from toxic environments and to remove whatever is causing that environment to be toxic. And again, that doesn't mean that we don't care about grace and we don't care about forgiveness, but we should not allow sin to continue to function in that way. It should not have a place within the church, especially leading the church. Right, exactly. So all that to be said, if we've said this before and we'll say it again, that character matters way more than charisma when it comes to leadership. We tend to really admire charisma we do we put charisma in the places of authority Hmm. but when the character isn't 
backing that charisma. That's where you get yourself into some of these very awful situations where there's an abuse of power, there's spiritual abuse, there is just a toxic environment that springs forth from that. And obviously no one is going to be able to live up to it fully. No one's going to be able to exist in leadership and be flawless. Like that just doesn't exist. But this person who is in leadership should be meek and humble. And I've I've actually seen it happen more within the Christian world is where you have someone who is a toxic leader, but they put on this facade of being meek and humble because they know as a Christian leader that's the qualities they're supposed to have. Right. They put that voice on. There's like the particular voice. Yes. Of, oh, but for the grace of God, so right. go I. But you're fired unless you agree with me. Exactly. So it's important to know meekness is not weakness. Like those are not one and the same. But oftentimes this leading out of brashness and over assertiveness is an indicator of someone who is extremely insecure and has a lot of personal weakness. Yeah, I think even especially when it comes to the point of berating people and uh, even if someone's berating someone else other than you, rest assured if you come in the crosshairs that 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 can happen to you. And so that's really an indicator. And so that the character of humility and meekness is far more important than the ability to be a real strong arm Mm, leader. Right. Yeah. So being a man isn't about how macho you are and being a leader isn't about your willingness to kick people's teeth in. Uh, Leadership is really all about humility. It's about service. And ultimately it's about obedience to God. Thanks for listening to the Her and Him podcast. If you enjoyed hanging out with us, consider subscribing to the podcast to receive it automatically each week. Also, be sure to head over to our website, herandhim.com, and you can get show notes for this episode, read our blogs, and other helpful resources. We'd also love to hear from you, so you can email us at herandhimblog at gmail.com. Thanks again, and we will see you next time. Hi, I'm Beckett Cook, host of The Beckett Cook Show. I lived as a gay man in Hollywood for many, many years until I had a radical encounter with Jesus 13 years ago. Since then, I've gotten my master's degree in seminary and published a book called A Change of Affection. On my podcast, The Beckett Cook Show, I sit down with fascinating Christian scholars and thinkers to address the lies of the culture and bring the biblical truth to bear on those lies. To start listening now, go to lifeaudio.com or search for The Becca Cook Show on your favorite podcasting platform.